It's our headline segment here on Metro FM Talk, and tonight uh, we have uh, the uh, fortune of uh, taking a look once again at uh, the uh, declarations of uh, states of disaster in the context, of course, of uh, the uh, uh, extreme weather events we've seen in the last while. And uh, we also did see, of course, declaration of a national state of disaster for the flooding uh, to deal with some of the consequences to stem and prevent the escalation of that crisis and so many other reasons as outlined in Section 27 of the uh, National Disaster Act. Uh, and, of course, this comes hot on the heels of a similar state of disaster declared for the uh, energy sector. But tonight, for the purposes of our chat, we talk solely about uh, how this measure will respond to the unfolding crises that we're seeing uh, as a result of uh, the uh, heavy rains. And I would also add, I guess, uh, the uh, difficulty for our infrastructure to mitigate the devastation brought about by some of these rains. Joined on the line on, by Dr. Elias Sitole. He's the head of the National Disaster Management Center. Dr. Sitole, good evening to you and welcome. Good, good evening and good evening to the listeners as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Dr. Elias, I want us maybe just to start uh, sometime last week. Um, the uh, declaration by the uh, uh, Ministry of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs of the state of disaster insofar as flooding is concerned. Uh, often there's mention made uh, of even the National Disaster Management Center, which you lead. Tell us, maybe just let us in uh, for a little bit here. Take us into your confidence. The moment that state of disaster was declared for flooding, what type of actions did that activate at the National Disaster Management Center? Um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, normally what happens is that uh, we establish structures or sometimes we activate structures which has already been uh, established. Mm. So at national, uh, we have a, for example, your national joint flood coordination committee, and then the committee um, uh, which comprises of all the departments at national. Uh, for example, your health department, your department of social development in the in other sector department which might be relevant mm. uh, in terms of responding to, uh, to disasters. But also at national, we have what we call it Intergovernmental Committee on Disaster Management. And that committee is chaired by the minister. And you, uh, you have other ministers from other departments uh, who are also participating uh, in, that, um, in the committee. But also, then you have the technical teams. So when I said we have technical teams, these are the uh, class teams, which comprises uh, other departments at national, but also they can also include other departments at the provincial level, so that they can actually zoom in to the specific areas. For example, if you have got a province which uh, where most of the infrastructure has been damaged or bridges have been washed away. Mm. And then you have that kind of a, a task team uh, with the Department of Road and Transport or Public Works and also other uh, departments which actually they can assist the community. But also, we are not only operating at national because disasters, they always happen at the municipality level. So at provincial level, then you have what we call it the prof jock. This is the structure uh, which is the joint operation center at the provincial level, which is being activated by the provincial disaster management center 
which then assist the municipality and work with that affected municipalities. But also at the municipality level, then you will then have what we call it a JOC, which is a JOC operation center, where if it is a district, you will have also your local municipalities participating in the JOC, mm. your NGOs and so on, so that they can assist the community. So coming back to our question to say, uh, what is our first step? Is they should activate those kind That's of structures, mm. but also just to make sure, depending on the extent of the damage, we can always bring on board the SNDF if the communities need to be evacuated or maybe airlifted mm. to another area to the safe area. We can also bring the SAPS and so on. So uh, that is a start, but then there's a lot of other activities which follows after the process. Okay. Dr. Stolle, hold the line there for me just for a second. We're going to take a quick spot break. When we come back, I want us to just uh, hone in on the disaster insofar as flooding uh, is concerned. And uh, I guess, uh, uh, as you say, what we learn from these structures that are in place but are activated by a national disaster. And, uh, yeah, we'll continue uh, with that uh, uh, just after the uh, brief uh, uh, a spot break that we want to take. And of course, uh, we did see in a statement coming out of the presidency uh, uh, about seven days ago, uh, suggesting that the National Disaster Management Center had received reports ranging from flooded homes, vehicles swept away by flood water, overflowing dams, sewage facilities, and the loss of basic infrastructure and damage to roads, bridges, and also a hospital out in Limpopo. And it will make sense um, about, I guess, the efficacy and effectiveness of some of the structures that would be activated by a national state of disaster. But also, to what degree is there continuity from one state of disaster to the next? Eight minutes it is before uh, 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. I'm in discussion tonight uh, with the, the uh, head of the National Disaster Management Center, joined by Dr. Elias Sitole, uh, to uh, talk about the uh, national state of disaster into flooding. Uh, this on the back of uh, massive uh, uh, I guess, flooding events across different provinces in our country. And uh, just before we went to the break, uh, Dr. Sitole, you were talking about, I guess, the structures that would be activated and the type of activities that this would give rise to, not just around planning a response, but also the immediate tasks of evacuating communities uh, uh, and, uh, of course, trying to at least deal with the severity or even the potential escalation of these crises. Now, I want to draw your attention to something, uh, Dr. Sitole, to maybe assist us here. So on the 13th of February, um, you know, there was, a, I guess, a, about a week ago, uh, the statement that I read from, from the presidency, which spoke about some of the reports you had received um, and, of course, how uh, the center will continue to monitor, coordinate the response and, of course, some of the recovery measures as well, including disseminating early warnings and advisories and so on. Now, if I go back less than a year ago, 18th of April, 2022, uh, declaration, similar declaration coming uh, through a statement from the president saying on the 11th and the 12th of April, parts of Guazul Natal received 200 to 400 millimeters of rainfall in a 24-hour period. And the heavy rainfall has also affected Alfredo, Chokabi, Oartambo, areas like Port St. John's and others. 4,000 homes completely destroyed. 8,300 homes have been partially damaged. Hasn't even been a year since these two states of disaster, looking into flooding in particular. Now, I'm quite interested, uh, Doc, in your coordination activities, to what degree is, a con is there a continuity in interventions? So if we know there's flooding, and the flooding might be due to a, a few factors, people locating their homes in floodplains or low-lying areas, 
you know, uh, uh, lack of maintenance or reinvestment in drainage capability, um, you know, and all manner of challenges. To what degree is there a continuous thread from one national state of disaster to the next so that at least the severity of whatever flooding might happen, God forbid, in Guazul Natal again, affecting the same areas that would have been affected in the April 22 disaster doesn't unfold. How does that work? How, how does that feature, I guess, in the work that you do? Yeah, uh, you are correct that uh, uh, each and every disaster is something which we need to learn. So let me just indicate that uh, April 22 floods in KZN, there are a lot of lessons learned out of that flood. And uh, what happened is that uh, out of uh, the April 22 floods in KZN, we've used um, those lesson learned as lessons which we can implement into any uh, disaster environment where the communities are, being, uh, are affected by floods. For example, uh, when you go to, let's say, Mpumalanga, your Eastern Cape or, or the Mpompo, this case, for example, now, Pumalang uh, and Eastern Cape, which uh, they were most affected by floods. So there are a lot of lessons which we've implemented there. For example, making sure that immediately when we receive an earlier warning from South African Weather Services, we make sure that we immediately use all available avenues mm. to inform the communities to make sure that those people they are uh, want, but also if we realize that uh, uh, there is a need for the communities to be relo- to be relocated before actually uh, the floods uh, affect their houses and homes until you have someone actually end up dying in the process, mm-hmm. we'll then make sure that we relocate those communities into the higher grounds. That's number number two, but also. We make sure that all our humanitarian relief, they are also geared in terms of uh, coming up quickly and assist the communities. Because when you relocate someone to, let's say, into a community hall or into in, uh, into tents and so on, they will need then some of the relief which mm. they will use in that environment. So we have those partners now who work with us, who will actually respond speedily, speedily uh, to deal with those issues. So if I can make an example, uh, we're able to move at speed in terms of responding to um, Pumalanga floods, mm. but also in the Eastern Cape, yes. There's a lot of uh, infrastructure which has been damaged by floods. And then also, I think we've raised the issue of um, coming up with programs where we uh, work with the municipalities to clean the stormwater drainage system. There is now a, a, a process which we are putting in place so that we make sure that we work with the municipalities, but also with the community, to make sure that we clean the drainage system so that when it, when it rains, uh, then the drainage system actually is not blocked. Mm. Then uh, you might have seen some of the towns where, it's, uh, where the experience has rain, automatically you find the shops or malls that are flooded. Yes, so yes. We've, learned that, yeah, we've learned from other provinces or from previous floods, and then we are now implementing those measures moving forward. Mm. Earlier on, you were saying, uh, and I, I guess drawing out in response to the question, and thank you for doing that, what you are learning. And I think this is what you are saying to us now. I'm quite interested to what degree 
institutions in our national system of innovation become part of this from a research and development perspective. So let me make the example of the drought. We know every so often, you know, that we will have a drought. I mean, some of the more learned people who speak about La Ninas and La Ninos and all of those are telling us that we are, you know, anticipating that there w might potentially be another drought all the way through to, say, 2028, 2029 or so. Um, for a country that has these as recurring features, have we started to build homegrown research and development into applications, products, processes and approaches that can help us mitigate the impacts and the escalation of the impacts of successive droughts and similarly even with the floods or any other form of disaster event? Uh, to what degree is that part of some of the structures that you speak about but also something intentionally front-loaded into whatever resource allocation is associated with national disasters? We know Section 27 says that one of the reasons why you set up a disaster is to also expedite issues like procurement and also reallocate resources. In those re resources, is there scope for that kind of R&D that at least helps us to package what we learn into processes, products, and so many other things that uh, people could benefit from at the time when they need it most? Yeah, <laughs> I think that uh, we are touching a very important uh, topic which is very close to my heart. Uh, we are working with uh, higher education institutions, mm. uh, especially also with other organizations which are doing research. Uh, we are working with the United Nations as well. Um, so uh, uh, CSIR, uh, also, we have also engaged CSIR as well, because we have realized that uh, too many uh, disasters smart, because now we don't want now to uh, you know, manage disaster in a traditional way. There are a lot of innovations which can be implemented to make sure that we use technology actually to uh, pinpoint some of the things, or, but also uh, the technology uh, which we have been exposed now from other uh, organizations, uh, actually they can actually predict or they can actually come up with a system uh, which actually can Easily predict to say there will be drought. Mm. Uh, you see in the, in this in this area, or let's say for example like now, let me just make an example like floods. No? You will have an area or a municipality area. If mm. yes, then we can actually uh, send the uh, area support to go and, and actually uh, rescue them. But also, as I've indicated, we are definitely working very closely with the higher education institution and other. Uh, research institutions just to make sure that uh, we actually uh, come up with innovations mm. because there are a lot of uh, interesting innovations which can be deployed in the field of disaster management so that we can make sure that our communities are safe. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other question related to that is the flow of the resources. So if, if there's a declaration via Section 27 of a disaster, and as you correctly say, some of the infrastructure you need to rehabilitate to mm. mitigate the severity of the disaster is not infrastructure mm. of the national sphere. It's infrastructure of municipalities and in some cases provincial sphere. Uh, to what degree yeah. implied in a declaration is there an implied devolution or distribution downward of money? Yeah, you see, during, uh, during the declaration, it makes it easy for other departments to reallocate or reprioritize uh, their funds. Mm. Of course, not to 
uh, actually stop other projects as well. But just to reprioritize the, the funds so that we can speedily assist the affected communities. But also, uh, from our side, it's disaster management. We've got grants which are available. Okay. And those grants, they can always augment whatever that particular department they've actually put in place to say we have X amount of money, but then we have got a shortfall. Then we can then uh, come in and then uh, close that kind of a gap. But also, remember, I've talked about an assessment mm. because we don't want just to uh, transfer money for the sake of transferring money to the municipality or to the province. But we just want to make sure that that money which we are transferring is going to be used for that particular project. So these departments, as they are participating to these structures, which, which normally we activate during, uh, during disasters, as and when they are there with us, they are attending meetings, they also give reports to say what kind of infrastructure or infrastructures are damaged in their line of function. Mm. For example, uh, you find the Department of Road and Transport, they will then talk about the um, uh, roads which have been washed away. And then in terms of how much maybe do they have, and then how much shortfall do they have. And then from our side, as we are under the state of uh, natural disaster, then it's become easy to augment uh, the shortfall which they have so that also they're able to speedily mm-hmm. repair whatever damage in the, in the municipality. Let me just indicate this, because uh, uh, lesson learned from KZM, uh, there was a lot of complaints and fear uh, pointing to government to say, yes, government, we don't care. Mm. Or that because, the money was uh, moving slow. That was the other complaint, uh, Dr. Stewart. Exactly. That the money, exactly. people lost their homes, they were displaced, they were living in tents and in churches, but the money just wasn't filtering to the provincial authorities who, who could rebuild for people. Exactly. So now, what we have now, uh, what we have done now, we said we want to lessen the pain, either from the municipality side or from that particular department which mm. need that money. So we have automated the system to make sure that uh, the municipalities of the province they can actually uh, uh, populate the template in electronic format and forward it to us. If there's gap, we can always go back to them quickly mm. to the gap so that we can speedily process that grant and then the money can be in the account, then they can start to assist the community because as government, as we are running a current government, we don't want to see our communities desperately sleeping in the halls and complaining and so on. We want to make sure that always as government we are putting the boots on the ground and then we are assisting the community. And to what degree in that pursuit do you work alongside the Auditor General? Because we often hear the common refrain from South Africans. At the moment a disaster is declared, it's a you know, wild, wild west. It opens the floodgates for all manner of malfeasance and so on. Um, to what degree is the Auditor General part of your, uh, I guess, governance or steering structures in order to make sure that the internal controls are there, everything you know, happens according to book insofar as the flow of resources is concerned? Yeah, no, thanks very much about that. Yes, we work very close with the Auditor General because uh, what we have said, even a single thing get messy. Mm. So we work very close with the Auditor General. During the process, as we implement the project, they do what, uh, what we call it real-time audit, just to make sure that any kind of uh, things which they are picking up, then we are able to correct it. 
so that we don't wait until the end of the implementation of the project, then we end up saying that, uh, then, oh, we end up discovering that, no, but this project is, it is incomplete because the money actually uh, was actually reallocated somewhere else and then we can't fund it, man. So we are working, we are working very close with them. For me, I would say, actually, it's a blessing in discuss that the Auditor General, in all our activities of disaster management moving forward, is actually a blessing to, uh, to have them because they're the real-time audit, but also is assisting us to make sure the officials that are not actually directing their fees up to the point that the project is incomplete. Mm. So we make sure that we put pressure to the municipalities, to the particular department, to make sure that the project is finalized and so the communities, their lives can go back into, into normality. Mm. Last question on my end, Dr. Stoller, before we let you go. Um, one would expect, I think, in a country like ours, where there's a discussion about uh, emergency responses, allocating resources for that purpose, uh, that uh, we would not want that to go against the letter and spirit uh, of our constitution, which requires some redress of uh, past imbalances, especially in relation to economic opportunity. Is there, in the framework with which you operate in your existing structures, consideration to the role and how it is that small and medium-sized enterprises can find expression and be able you know, to uh, provide products and services that are needed as part of the disaster response, especially in areas such as critical infrastructure, its rehabilitation, or even, I guess, build processes for new infrastructure? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, because uh, <clears throat> what we normally used to say is that, uh, uh, for example, if the disaster hit, and then we call it the uh, emergency response. That's why actually we, we, we put immediate uh, response activity into that area. But then later on, we have what we call it rehabilitation and reconstruction. That's where big projects, actually, like, for example, like your capital project. Mm. Let, me just make a, let, let me just make an example. Building a bridge might, might not take you three months. Actually, it might take you like six months or eight yeah. months. That's why we always encourage the municipalities to use, uh, you know, uh, you know, medium upcoming uh, uh, black companies because we want to make sure that also we empower uh, the previous disadvantaged communities because these projects they happen in the community, mm. but also the beauty uh, the beauty with our project is that as and when now these companies are rehabilitating or they're doing the construction of the roads or the bridges in those communities. We want them to employ the local communities there so that we can also add, uh, uh, make sure that uh, uh, people, because we know the problem of unemployment in mm. our country. Mm. Uh, so we are sort of also, uh, from our side of disaster management, we can also assist to make sure that we lower the problem of unemployment in our country. So these big companies, actually want them, they must subcontract, a small company so that they can build capacity, mm. but also employ local communities in those areas. Last one, uh, Dr. Stoller, before we let you go. Give us the latest you are hearing in reports that are coming to you from the VAL uh, and even, I guess, other parts, uh, affected parts of our country. Um, we also heard issues in Pumalanga and uh, also parts of the Eastern Cape as well. Yes, uh, in Pumalanga, the damage assessment is still ongoing. Just to check the extent of the damage, um, and in the Val, we have experienced some flooding um, to the communities, um, 
uh, but uh, there are, uh, I would say, capabilities or our response teams, which were, which were activated, etc., since those communities. We know that in the Eastern Cape, uh, especially in Coffee Bay, uh, over the weekend, there were some problems there, but SNDF, uh, then that, that, that came on board to come and assist us and also to assist the communities there to make sure that at least maybe we put temporary bridges and so on. I must also indicate that uh, our Deputy Minister, uh, Maker the Main, uh, tomorrow she will be in the Sazeni doing the oversight uh, that, to, to see actually the, what government has done and then also what we need to do as government on, on the ground. But I must also indicate mm-hmm. that uh, as a national disaster center, we are working very close with provinces. Thank you. Dr. Elias Sitole, thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us. Dr. Elias Sitole is the head of the National Disaster Management Center.